Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment strategies. Thank you so much for listening in. Today's conversation is focused on growing the good via asset-based responses and connects to both the community and assessment strands of the PEBC teaching framework, as well as the culture strand of the PEBC leadership framework. Julie Wright believes that autonomy and agency thrive for children and adults when responses are efficient, effective, and equitable. Julie is a traveling teacher, instructional coach, educational consultant, author, and a short text of all types enthusiast. Whether working alongside students, teachers, or administrators, Julie believes in bringing out the best in the work by using asset-based approaches. As an educator for over 25 years, Julie has worked in rural, urban, and suburban settings. You may know Julie through some of her writing. She is the co-author of What Are You Grouping For? Grades three through eight, how to guide small groups based on readers, not the book. And author of What's Our Response? Creating Systems and Structures to Support All Learners and Side-by-Side Instructional Coaching, 10 Asset-Based Habits that Spark Collaboration, Risk-Taking, and Growth. In her free time, however she finds that with such a volume of writing, Julie enjoys hiking with her family, tinkering her garden, and is a wannabe beekeeper. Julie, welcome to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Hey, Michelle. Thanks so much for that introduction and for the opportunity to join in this conversation with you. Julie, I'm really excited to dive into our conversation today about growing the good. As a traveling teacher and an instructional coach, you have an opportunity to work with teachers and students and school leaders from across the country. What are you noticing? Yeah, such a good question. You know, teachers, you know, every summer teachers have to refuel and recharge. That is, that's the beauty of it of summer sometimes brings that, but teachers also work hard in the summer. They study and they, um, you know, fuel themselves with the things they love. You know, a lot of educators came off of this last spring kind of tired. The last two years, they've been tricky. They've been tricky for so many reasons and for so many people, educators being one group of people along with other organizations, you know, leaders and teachers and support staff, you know, they're trying to find a new way forward. Um, a lot has happened without re, re, reliving some of that. It's it's pretty apparent for everyone. You know, there's a realness to what happens in school these days. There are some gaps in students' knowledge. Teachers are thinking about that as they're entering this school year. How are they going to support kids? And how are they going to get get to know kids and, and really serve their needs? Uh, paying close attention right now to social emotional well-being has never been more at the forefront um, of educators' minds. And, you know, school folks today, because of um, the last couple of years, they have new materials they're wrestling with, some of which they may be excited about, some which may be new and hard to think about, um, resources and things that need attention. So their their plates are already full. They're starting the school year. Uh, Most of them are really pretty amazingly pumped up about it. The same can be said for school leaders and the support staff too. But, you know, I think for this 
um, portion, thinking about teachers explicitly might be an interesting way to, to have our conversation start. Um, because teachers, when I work alongside of them, they, they really want to do good by kids. They get up every day and they're in the business of school to teach and empower kids and they want to grow their knowledge and they want to empower them to grow their passions. And all of that can be a little bit daunting. And then things interrupt that school setting like the last couple of years. And for some, that may not have been for the better. And so they're trying to wrestle with this um, these two parts of how they might be feeling about uh, about school. And sometimes when the work feels really hard, even if you're excited about it, um, there might be a moment in teachers' lives where they start to tire out and that might be natural. Um, that might be happening for different people. And the, the, the one thing that happens to teachers is one of two things. And this could be, this could be happening all at the same time. Sometimes teachers approach, I could say the same for school leaders um, and support staff. Sometimes they go to the deficit space where we blame and we, um, you know, start to, to figure out why things are so hard because of that exhaustion. Um, that might look something like the way uh, we talk about things. For example, someone might say, you know, Jamal can't do that assignment because he hasn't done his homework in three days, thinking about that. Or, you know, Reese is struggling in class. I've called her mom two times and I haven't heard back. I wonder if Reese needs referred to services. The inherent good is to help those children, but sometimes it comes out in that negative deficit feel. And then the other approach is the asset-based approach, which first sizes up what students can do and uses that to lift their learning. So they might say something like, you know, let's see if Jamal can, you know, do those first two problems in that assignment. Let's figure out if if he can do it and then lift that learning going forward. Or let's actually sit down with Reese and let's figure out what's working and what's clunky and come back together to figure out what she might need next. And so those two different approaches are sometimes uh, the way people approach those. And mine, my role is to try to lean on that asset-based piece so that when teachers are really tired and when they're exhausted or when they've switched grade levels or when they have a new teaching team or a new principal, that they can lean on those asset-based responses first so that they can see the beauty in doing so. Mm. Oh, Julie, thank you. And I think it's, you know, as I'm listening, I was thinking a little bit also about um, just some of the information kind of floating around in the public space, right? The emphasis still squarely often sits in test scores and this, you know, the, the culture last year of, of catching up, I think also put folks in a, in a space where we were looking to kind of to close gaps or to increase achievement. And that can also put us in that space of thinking about what kids need, but sometimes our language or some of our actions are in that deficit-based space. Especially when people feel the pressure of that, right? Absolutely. Sometimes what happens is we sometimes get caught up in the, the must-dos of some old practices, mm. right? There are benchmark assessments and, and charts that we use in school that tell us what we're supposed to be, uh, what we're supposed to be aiming toward with kids. Uh, but then something has happened where there's been a pause or a different way of schooling, and we didn't always adjust some of those charts to take into account that while 
there might feel like there's a gap in one type of knowledge. Kids might have gained knowledge in a new arena or a new area that we're not even really assessing yet. And so when I sit alongside leaders in particular, and of course, teachers and reading and math specialists who are, you know, working their hardest to put employ all these strategies with kids, I sometimes say, can we just, just for, you know, three minutes, take a pause. And could we just like, just clear the noise in our heads and actually think about what it is that we know about kids, the kids we're talking about right now, maybe that's a select group of five, or maybe that's a whole class of kids that we're worried about. And I use worry kind of in air quotes, if you could see me right now, worry is real for people and their intent is good. But to say, if we're really worried about them, can we first say the things we don't need to worry about? Mm. Like maybe someone who isn't reading where we want them to be reading because of a chart that really does hold some value or of importance. Maybe they have a new skill set that we didn't know that they had before because now maybe they have some technology in their hands that could be the tool that's going to ignite their excitement around something. Or maybe, maybe the most important thing is reframing a new social group because kids show up often because of their peers. And so sometimes I think we have to figure out what's the problem are we actually trying to solve and is it the right one? Mm. Wow. So as I'm listening, one thing I'm thinking about is your body of published work and as a synthesizer, you know, I'm all about the reading thinking strategies. I'm thinking about that synthesis in the essence of your work is about lifting learners and educators up. And that in each of your books and your articles, there is a sense of true appreciation for others as individuals and as intellectuals. And so there's this beautiful example and it's in a, in a blog that you wrote called Kid Watching 2.0. And you write about a, a young guy named Corey. And I was captivated by the way you described Corey and all of the noticings that you teased out. So I just want to share this little, little snip of text with you. Meet Corey, a funny, a funny Lego loving fifth grader who hasn't picked up a chapter book in months. Yet we are sure he will be standing on the red carpet someday because his homegrown comic book series, The Vindicators, will be made into a multi-million dollar franchise. If you were to look at Corey's typical reading and writing work products, the ones assigned by teachers and related to the curriculum, you might worry that he needed extra support. You go on to share that you noticed that Corey had just a backpack full of scraps that had lots of jottings on them and notebooks full of notes and ideas. And as you were conferring with, with Corey, you shared the sketch to stretch strategy with him as a way to hold his thinking. And I'm just thinking about you a term that you use a lot, which is asset-based response. And kind of, if you wouldn't mind link for us, how does this anecdote and your experiences with Corey connect to our conversation today about growing the good and this ways in which we can frame our responses? Yeah, Corey's such a good example of that. He's kind <laughs> of like a, a walking example of sometimes what you, what you, what you get on the surface is not really what's happening. Right. You know, he, he was the kid, you know, like walk into the classroom in the morning. He's got his backpack unzipped. He's got stuff flailing out of it. it you know, it, it's, he doesn't exactly know where that paper or that notebook is. And he's not completely sure where he put that book. He, he's missing that folder. He thinks he is, but someone else has it, but he's got a brain that is on fire because he's a creator and he's a doer. And so, you know, by the looks of it, it might not look like he's ready to learn when really his walking into the classroom, talking with his friends, 
being the, you know, the social motivator is the work of his day. It's how he starts. And so the idea of like standing back and just taking note of, you know, trying to have a judgment free zone. So mm-hmm. when I'm working with teachers, I'll say, let's just stand back and let's just take note. Yes. He might need some organizational help. Yes. And yes, he might actually bulk at our assignments that we create for him, but it doesn't mean that he can't do. Let's figure out what he can do. So if we stand back and we kid watch, which is what this blog post is about. Love it. It's about quick observations about Corey to figure out what kind of work does he produce Mm -hmm. and why does he produce it and for whom? And to try to think about whether or not we can make the connection for him. So for Corey, he was a doodler. And if he could use that asset of being this doodler, being this drawer, this visual kid, if we could use those skills that he's showcasing regularly without being asked, if we could do that and have him do that with his reading, because the idea is to make meaning, right? So if we want to exactly. know what reading. We got to ask what they're thinking. In this case, he had an assignment where he's supposed to be writing about what he's thinking, about what he's reading. And so if we can get him to doodle, to make meaning, maybe through some small group conversations or maybe through a one-on-one conversation with him, maybe through some modeling, maybe with a a task that is of interest to him, maybe, just maybe he can do it. And so that's exactly what happened with Corey, sharing with him, you know, if you sketch, if you're reading something and you sketch it out. And you start to make some sketches about that. You could then add a few little notes to it that doesn't have to look like paragraphs. It can look like blurbs or words or little captions. You can then use that to grow his purpose for writing in a typical assignment, which is exactly what happened with him. Um, Because for him, a win for win was for him to be able to use his art Mm-hmm. And then to be able to showcase it and then add some writing to it. In, in our case, we were asking him just to write. The best part about Corey, the reason for me, it's such a nice example. And I'm not completely sure that it's um, explicit in the blog post, but it's one of those extra tidbits that you like that I will remember forever is the the important part was that once Corey started doing this strategy and showcasing it, um, it began to spread like wildfire because other kids were watching him too. So he went from the kid who can't do to the kid who started teaching others how to. And so our initial worry about Corey ended up becoming a strength that ultimately impacted other kids. And um, with, with the, at that point, with very little teacher input, you know? mm-hmm. kids would rather hear about sketch to stretch from Corey than from the teacher. So I think that, you know, that absolutely links to that concept of growing the good. Building on that asset, um, I'm curious though as to a sense of hesitancy or nervousness if you know the quote unquote assignment was to was to create some writing a, a writing response to the reading, and you were able to really tie into Corey's assets to help him respond to the text. What did you see in terms of his growth as a writer or being able to respond? And in what ways did you coach and think about that as a possible reframe of a more traditional assignment, if you will? So often we are taught as teachers with good reason that when kids can't do something, we need to scaffold it. And right. often scaffolding is in, in, in teacher terms, right? We teach the kiddo the scaffold. 
that's not a bad, that's not a bad idea. So I don't want anyone to, who's listening to think, well, that's not what we should do. My point is it's not the only thing that we can do. And so sometimes the scaffold is about leaning into kids' assets that exist to begin with. So in this case, Corey's asset is that he was a doodler. And for some, it's all about sort of like your philosophy about whether or not you believe doodling is writing. I happen to believe that. And so for me, that's already constructing some type of meaning because it's something that Corey was producing, right? As, as um, connoisseurs of the world, we either consume stuff or we produce it. And in school, we often want kids to do both. So for me, the, the producing part can look in lo lots of different formats. So when I'm working with teachers, I'm saying, let's go on a, let's go on a hunt. Let's open yeah. up, right? We can model for kids how they might hold their thinking. In this particular case, it's around making meaning of text. That can, that can be true of lots of content areas. But to be able to say, maybe we need to open up our own vision of what it means to scaffold. Um, and in, in Corey's case, his, our kid watching showed us what to do. But sometimes it requires us to kid watch and then to scratch our heads a little bit. And one of my go-to strategies with teachers is if, if kids aren't showing us their natural ways, then we just need to ask them. That's one of the best gifts we can give to kids is to sit down with a kiddo or a group of kids and say, we were holding our thinking this way and we were showcasing what we knew, for example, about this text by writing a paragraph. Is there a better or a different way that your brain is seeing it going? Because at the end mm. of the day, we just want you to be able to convey what meaning is, are you making within this text? And so I think us opening up our own minds about how do we scaffold? Who are we asking? Who gets, who gets a voice in that? And waiting for those beautiful surprises that come to us and capitalizing. Wow. And so really, I mean, there's a stance shift in fuel. When we think about, yeah, like asset-based response, and that's what kind of the term I think that would be really helpful for you to unpack for us or help us define what is an asset-based response, but you've just done such a lovely job of putting us in that space of stance, flexibility, open, thinking about possibilities, really taking that, you know, that step back for kid watching. When I think about the Goodmans, I had an opportunity to work with them years and years and years ago as a baby teacher and thinking about you can learn so much just by being quiet and focusing on students, but then you also gave us that gift of, and it's okay to ask questions. Yeah. So if I'm in this space and I'm really taking in what kids can do, either through observation or through conferring, what does my response look like and sound like? What is an asset-based response? Well, I think you, um, you actually named one of the first steps, which is pause and take note. That is a, an asset-based response stance, is that mm -hmm. we... We are, we are sort of deprogramming ourselves. Teachers are taught to take action. That's the beautiful part, but our action can actually be to not intervene, to not over scaffold, to not over answer for kids. They become over-reliant for us to do that. And, and then the glory goes to the teacher, not to the kiddo. Hmm. And so I, like you, I wish I had been, um, as, as, um, up close and personally informed with the Goodmans. I was an afar uh, reader of an admirer of theirs. But that is where that kid watching comes from, is early literacy kids. The kudos goes to them 
uh, my co-author and I, we just, we just revolutionized it by putting 2.0 on it because that's what we love do. it. But that, that kudos goes to them because they were onto something about just sitting back and studying and being able to say, if I can note, um, you know, what is it that I see in here? And then what am I wondering? We can then start to marry our observations with responses that might actually go the extra mile. And so one of the, your, your question was such a, a nice, a nice, a nicely worded one. What is asset-based response? I think it takes um, not only a mind sh shift in a, a, a sort of a stance um, shift, but it also takes some openness and some trust. We have to trust that if we believe learning is a process, then it's not going to be a singular event. If we believe learning takes time, then we're going to wrap ourselves around the time that we have and build those theories about kids. So I wonder if Corey is able to doodle around <clears throat> the things he loves, I wonder if doodling to think about his reading would get him further in his writing about his reading. That's like, it's like the inquiry that grows out of observing him. And then making sure that you get the student's voice in the actions that we have created for them. Um, I can't tell you how many um, team meetings, data meetings, literacy team meetings, response meetings I have been a part of where the first thing people do is start talking about what kids can't do. Mm -hmm. So uh, that immediately sets us up for, we must, maybe we need to rescue. If we start with kids' assets, we might be able to say, how do we grow that good and then figure out where kids need a lift. We're not going to avoid the lift. That's part of our job too. The lift can be a way to say we can get away from that deficit language. I, I, when teachers um, are in a habit because their culture speaks it, who's low, who's the higher flyer, who's, who's on the struggle bus. I don't tell them they're wrong. I just use different language. I'll say, well, let's imagine where their assets are and where they might need a lift. Because the truth is the brightest kids still deserve a lift somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so for us to be able to use language that might say we're going to honor assets because everyone has them. And we're going to honor an area where we need a lift because everyone needs some of those too. So you're starting to give us some really concrete examples. And I know that your work in schools is with teachers um, and you know, in support, is supporting instruction, but I know that you also have deep expertise in coaching and that you've written a lot about coaching practices and ways to inspire you know, teachers through coaching rather than consulting, if you will. And so I'm just curious, you know, we're hearing a couple more examples. What does this look like and sound like across context? Because some listeners might be coaching teachers and they might be thinking, wow, this is really resonating for me as a coach. How might I shift my stance so that I'm seeing the assets that my teachers present? And then for our, our classroom teachers and our facilitators of data teams and such, what does that look like and sound like in their context? Yeah, so many, so many times we shortchange um, all the good that everyone brings to the table. And it's usually right. because time isn't on our side, right? Time is our mm -hmm. biggest enemy at times to be able to say, um, if we just had a little more time. So I always say, well, what time do we have, whether, whether it's with kids or with adults? And then how are we going to use that time to bring out the best that we can? And sometimes that means 
really getting to know people, like bringing out the best in them is sometimes about asking, you know, what do you bring to the table? What are your interests? What are your talents? What are your passions? You know, do you, do we need to survey and listen in to conversations and, and watch as people interact to learn that possibly? Um, do we need to ask teachers, you know, what are you interested in giving? You, you're a professional, you, you have gifts that you can share with others. What do you mm -hmm. want to get? We, if we, if we can ask teachers to name what they can give and what they can get, um, they can be more posi better positioned to be part of the shared leadership team in a school, which is so greatly needed today. I always, um, I always say when I'm talking with uh, teachers, when I'm talking with parents, when I'm talking with leaders, I say, you know, every kid, every kiddo in a school, regardless of setting, deserves to have a teacher who has a thinking partner. And they'll listen and they'll say, thinking partner? And I'll say, yeah, I'm an instructional coach. I love being an instructional coach. I'm a consultant instructional coach, but I love it. But not all schools have that luxury. It's a position that's not tied to kids. It's tied to adult learning. And so I say, I want every school across, across schools to have an instructional coach, but if they don't have one, or even if they do, every teacher still needs thinking partnerships because sometimes the coach is had their rosters too large to get to everyone, but no one should do this work alone. Schools are tricky. Schools are sophisticated and complicated and exciting and inquiry-based and problem-solving-based. So we should be doing it with other people, not because it's good for the adults. Sure, it's good for them, but because kids deserve that. Mm. And so if, if nobody has to go at it alone, we can nudge each other. We can, you know, widen our lenses on how to look at something. We can share strategies that have worked with kids across time so that we don't have to be stuck in this box of how we respond to kids. Oftentimes it's become such a machine model of, well, in three weeks, a kiddo is going to make this kind of growth in this amount of time. And those systems were put into place to help people, but I'm not certain we've done enough sizing up and reflecting on whether or not those systems are just actually boxing us in. I think at one point in time, that was a way to get started. I think the response we need for both teachers as practitioners is to be thinking constantly with other people about our talents and our um, the gifts we bring to the table and also the things we wanna get smarter about because there's no two kiddos alike, there's no year that's alike. And so asking asking people what they might need, you know? I am working with a teacher right now that she said, you know what I need for the beginning of the year? I need to work on building relationships. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. Because when I was in her classroom last year, she looked like she could be like the model for that. And I, you know, picked her brain a little bit about it and, and tried to understand. And it made sense to me what she was saying. What she was saying is this is actually the thing that I think is going to help me go from point A to point B. And that's what I want. And so we're going to work on content and curriculum and teaching strategies too. But she got some she got some, um, she got some muscle in the game now, right? Because we're going to work on that together. And um, all of my observation may not have taught me that, but when you ask people, it can get you further than you even probably ever imagined. Wow. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, just to, to take that pause, to think about the adults in this space, 
I think when you think about, you know, I think about the PBC teaching framework or the PBC leadership framework. And one of our principles is elevating the teaching profession. And that really includes thinking about teachers as professionals who are curious and who are learners and who are asking big questions. And the way you just described this idea of an asset-based response within a system is really intriguing because really you're flipping to think about what are all the assets we have in our basket? What are all the strengths? And then the other side of that, which I think links right to agency and perhaps autonomy is, well, what do you need? What do you want to get from others or, or where do you want to grow? And so I think it's that it's a really interesting balance. And I think it's really what we want to perpetuate in our classrooms also is here are all the assets and strengths and here are all the goals and desires. And how do we work together to create that space of inquiry and learning and, and I would say efficacy and agency. I would agree with you. You know, it's interesting um, because Oftentimes what happens is you start asking teachers. I don't if you're a leader, you're a department chair, you're a coach, you're a superintendent, you're a colleague. You ask, you start asking teachers, you know, what are you good at? And you start, or you start noticing, you know what I noticed? Like you have this gift with um, how you interact with people or how you put materials together or how you model for kids, whatever the asset is, whether it's teacher um, self-proclaimed or observed from an outsider. Once you start naming those things and, and not as a way to, you know, showcase all kinds of glory to one person, but as an asset to say, this is a real strength. And once you start asking people, what do you want to get smarter about? How do you want to grow your, your knowledge or your skill set, or, or how do you want to help kids in different ways? When teachers start to experience that, they can in turn then, sometimes they have an aha moment where they say, if I'm learning as an adult through those means, I wonder what happens if I start doing that with kids. Mm -hmm. Like I've had teachers across the years have a little aha moment. And I'm, I can always, I think to myself, this was a good day when this happens, where they'll say, you know, you ask me all the time, you know, how do I want to get smarter? And I turned around and I asked kids today, what can I do? How do you want to get smarter? And teachers will say it worked for them, just like it worked for me. Mm -hmm. And it's because when they have that voice and they have some choice, learners of all ages, they want to show up more often. They show up ready and they show up um, interested in moving themselves forward, which is what agency and autonomy is all about, right? Absolutely. So gosh, Julie, you know, we started our conversation really thinking about kids. Um, you know, really thinking about your example with Corey and your experiences and that that asset-based response stance. Then we shifted into thinking about the adults in the building. Let's wrap up our conversation today by going kind of back into that kid space. Um, this idea of promoting agency and autonomy and engagement, I think, is coming through in our conversation that this the asset-based stance and the asset-based response really perpetuate that. But if, if, if this is some new thinking for me, or if I'm finding some inspiration in this conversation, what are some concrete examples or, or what might this look like or how might this manifest in a, in a typical classroom or school or PLC setting? Yeah, if I'm, if I'm starting at the, um, if I'm starting at the adult level, 
I'm thinking with teachers, you know, all coaches or all thinking partners have habits, whether they've named them or not. And so I, I have some habits that I try to employ as much as I can, um, which is honoring teacher voice and honoring teacher choice so that they have the know-how and the interest to do it when I'm not around. So I, I want them to not only have the practices that they've put into place when I'm there, mm-hmm. I want to build that capacity that will last. And so when I'm, when I start with teachers, my go-to, my go-to habit is planning. I figure if we can get really well co-planned, then, then, then we can start to think about how that plan can evolve in real time and real action. And so with that comes the threat of kids, because you really cannot co-plan well, in my opinion, if you don't have kids at the center of your thinking. And so if we start with those kiddos as learner centered, and we think about what it is that they need and what they want, and we work to marry our curriculum and our content, right? So we might be thinking about a nonfiction unit. I don't care if we're talking about third grade. I don't care if we're talking about eighth grade or a really cool high school course that's talking about nonfiction. If we start to imagine what it is we want kids to know and be able to do, that old age old question, and then to imagine all the nonfiction text in the world. There's so much of it. If we, we can do one of two things, we can think about what we love, right? We can share our passions with kids, but we can also ask kids, what are you passionate about? Because nonfiction can go so many different directions as an example, right? So then we can start to ask kids what they're interested in. We can try. I use the word try with teachers because sometimes it's hard um, to do it all. So you start small and you start to put into place building interest with kids by piquing their interest by asking them their opinion and then creating opportunities for them to not only read and write, consume and produce things that might matter to them. Um, and giving choice wherever you can and letting your plans evolve that way. And then layering on, what are the talents that we have in this learning community, both teacher and student? And where do we want to grow our muscles? And so uh, it's not unusual for a teacher and myself to be sitting in front of a group of kids and say, you know, during this unit of say nonfiction, as an example, we're going to be growing our muscles in these ways. For some people, that looks like learning targets. For some people, they just talk regularly about how they're going to grow their muscles. And then it's really important for kids to know that as teachers, we're growing our muscles too. And so that they see that this learning piece is an interaction between self and others, and that kids understand that we're going to be learning from them as much as teaching them. And so all of that is really hard work, but it's like the delicious, yummy stuff that why we show up to school, <laughs> you know, right. if, we, if we don't have that yummy stuff that is interactive, I, I think that um, we are disengaged in general. And then we go fall into lockstep processes and we probably think less and probably feel less fulfilled. Hmm. So thinking about those, the opportunity for kid watching and seeing what our kids can do and then really leveraging those strengths providing opportunities for teachers to be agentic, to be able to share their strengths and their desires with their colleagues and with their staff and within the system, and then engaging in planning that is student-centered. Absolutely. Three really important steps and all based in this 
this asset stance that you really embody. I have a hard question for you though. What about folks who are a little bit reticent or a little bit skeptical? Um, can we really be this asset-based all the time? Such a great question. <laughs> I, <laughs> I laugh because there are skeptics. Because it's you, a, yeah. That's what we started with. People are tired. People want this asset-based thing. They want it to be true. But I'm asked often, Julie, are you sure? Can you be that <laughs> asset-based? It's a real question. And it's a fair one. You know, I say to people, so if, if are you getting the results that you want, that you're desiring? If so, then maybe your approach, whatever you would name it, is working. Maybe you're not, maybe you're in between asset based and deficit based, or maybe you you don't even lean toward the deficit because that's not even part of your language. It's really more about are you getting the results that you desire? This asset based stance came from people twiddling their thumbs and always going after what wasn't working. Right. Well, when we change it up and we say, well, let's figure out what is working and build off of it then we can start to show our gains in insignificant ways. And when people look, I say to people, when you look back a decade from now, you know, what will kids and adults, what will they say about this learning environment? What will be the thing that they mention? What will be the thing that sticks? What will have shaped them? Is it that some deficit was fixed? Because nobody really shows up to be fixed. Or is it that they felt growth and they felt movement. And that's what made them continue to want to remember that not only show up daily, but remember it later. And then more importantly, probably is how will they, how will people looking back, how will they say they shaped the learning community? Because that interaction is, is so vital as well. So this, this, you know, back and forth piece matters that they contributed to something. And then, you know, when people say, well, asset based, I'll say, well, are you showing up? with your best self every day, how do you know? And, and what's your barometer for that? Because, you know, there might be some grumpy moments in time of school, but kids energize teachers. They, they're the reason teachers show up. Teachers don't show up for duties and meetings and calendar <laughs> invites. They don't show up for their email. They show up for the kids. And so I said, what, what, what more do you need from as an asset as a kiddo smiling or an aha look on their face? That's an asset. And if you were a part of that, that could be really um, inviting to do that more. You know, that could be the invitation you're looking for. And then the, the last thing I sometimes say, um, I'm not sure I'll be super eloquent about it, but the idea of like, have we sized up, you know, are we really utilizing the time and the talents and the treasures of our whole learning community? And it sounds a little foofy, but that idea of have we really sized it up? Have we really utilized it? Have we squeezed out the goodness there? Because sometimes the assets one holds in the whole learning community, a parent, a custodian, a volunteer, the principal, a support staff, sometimes their assets are exactly what kids need right in the classroom, right then and there as a, as a resource to continue to fuel that good. And so, you know, it's that idea. My grandmother told me years ago when I was a little child that people matter most. And I think I've just kind of lived off of that in my professional life. And I think it served me well. And I'm hoping mm -hmm. that it will serve other people well too. Wow. Julie, thank you so much. As you know, we reflect back on that, on, you know, your grandmother's wise words, 
people matter most? And have we squeezed out the good and everything in our community to benefit the community? I think those are you know, just two concepts that are really going to stick with our listeners. But I, I always end all of our podcasts with the same question. What is your call to action? I think my call to action is to keep at it. Mm. You know, the work is never done. Our world is changing in great and exciting ways and being ready to embrace it, which means being vulnerable. It means not always knowing. It means leaning on other people, finding the people that can make you think and think about things differently, but also fuel the things that you need um, sort of a lift in yourself. I think when we when we have that idea of, you know, we can get one and give one, we can give an idea to someone, give a strategy, give a thought, give a kind heart. And we can also lean on people to get those things from them. I think, I think that's what makes school school. And um, when we do that, um, we end up, no matter what our role is in schools, wanting to come back again the next day. So mm -hmm. otherwise the alternative is being in a place where you don't want to be and, and no good comes of that. So the, the idea of like, you know, landing on a space to, to have your own call to action, to size up, you know, what are your gifts and how might you impact a learning community? And then how might you open yourself up to uh, allow others to impact you and, and regardless of role or age. Oh, Julie, thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.